Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Kleber, your host, and with me today is Wailu. Hey. hey, Sean. How you doing? Oh, good. Why? How's your weather? Yeah, good. It's uh, sunny. I'm getting really bad hay fever though. That's the only problem. But starting to warm good. up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. We're getting up to about 27, which is probably about 90 or something where you are, maybe. Wow. Wow. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't actually know yeah. the conversion. But, uh, uh, <laughs> fall has hit us hard this week. We've got tons and tons of rain. All the leaves are falling. So I've got jobs to do this weekend, clean up leaves, things like that, as long as they can dry up a little bit. So right. yeah, we're definitely uh, switching sides on the seasons here. I've always liked the autumn, though. It's kind of pretty. It is pretty. Yeah, we always uh, like to go out and take our Christmas picture with all the trees and different colors and things like that. So right. that works out for, uh, for us. Nice. Yep. All right, let's bring on our guest today, Simon Pager. Hey, welcome, Simon. Hey, hello, kids. Hey. <laughs> it's Mr. How's it Rogers' going? Neighborhood. I don't know what that is, but sure. You don't know who Mr. Rogers is? Wow. No, no clue. <laughs> I guess that's uh, something you, you just missed out being in England there. Yeah, it probably. I, I, it was you a, probably uh, don't know. It's a children's show, you know, that everybody over here grew up when they were you know young and things like that and he just him you know puppets and characters and things like that and told stories and lessons and things like that so it's just very popular so oh. if you get bored you can look up mr rogers neighborhood i shall bear it in mind <laughs> okay hey folks this is charles maxwood from top end devs and lately i've been working on actually building out top end devs if you're interested you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why i'm doing what i'm doing with top end devs why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv. And I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there, and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So why don't you tell us uh, about yourself, you know, what you do, where you work, and uh, kind of how you got into development? Sure. Well, how I got into development, believe it or not, be I started in ZX Spectrum Basic, which was probably something a good chunk of folks over here played around with in, I think we're talking like through the 80s and maybe into the early 90s, although there were probably better things by then, but... It was like one of the early home computers over here, and it. For I, I, you guys probably don't need to be told about all this sort of stuff, but uh, it was like it had. It was a very crude old computer, and it had eight colors, eight, not 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 bits, just eight, and one of them was black. It, but it was a marvelous old beast. Uh, also, couldn't color in characters. So when you had a character moving around the screen, they couldn't color the characters in. It could only color in the background. So whenever your character walked in front of the background, they turned that color. It was, yeah, it, and uh, loading off cassettes, that sort of thing. But yeah, I actually, but the thing with the Spectrum was that it booted effectively to the IDE. You know, you booted to a programming interface. This is probably the same. I think you had Commodore over there, didn't you? Mm -hmm. C64? Yep. Yeah, yep. same sort of a thing, although probably not quite as nice looking. And uh, we had C64s too, but, you know, hey, I couldn't afford one. Yeah. But So I got him started on that. My dad had a, a great big manual, a basic and uh, I used to play about with it. We used to get these marvelous old uh, books where uh, published by a company called Usborne, where they had these brilliant like oil-painted action battle scenes on the front with spaceships and aliens and explosions. And there'd be some source code where this would be the source of your game. You'd sit there for about two hours, quietly typing it in, correcting mistakes, run it, and it's like, you know, choose a random number. You chose the wrong number. Try again. You know, this, this was actually what you got. But it was fun. At the time, it was fun. And then we, I, there was like a careers counseling thing we got to have a go at when I was going through school. And it suggested you could be a computer programmer. And I thought, you can make money doing this? So yeah, there we go. It's pretty much from that point on, that's what I decided I was going to do. That, but probably with slightly better graphics. And I, not that I do computer games, but yeah, did the whole 
standard college, university, all the rest of it, got jobs, carried on getting other jobs. I've been going professionally now for 16 years, I think, in uh, .NET. I started pretty much in .NET in my first professional job. Started back in .NET 1 and in .NET Compact Edition, if anyone remembers that. It was a thing. I used to do mobile application development. That's how I started doing uh, applications for local council bus services over here. The best thing ever was I got to practice development on doing the, the mapping system that like zoomed in and zoomed out as your bus got further and closer to the destination, which meant I got to test it by going for a walk in the local park in the sunshine. It was brilliant. But uh, these days I work for Muller, who are a dairy company. So in that first job uh, with, with .NET, did you, did you know .NET beforehand or they just that's what they're using and they hired you and then you had to learn it? That second one, I did not know. In fact, prior to that, uh, I was somewhat fresh out of university and the university course had been almost exclusively in Java. But a friend of a friend of my mum suggested that I might try applying for a job he was aware was going with his company. And he said it was in C Sharp. I said, what is that? And he said, it'd be fine. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much I learned it on the spot. But having a little bit of a background in Java the jump into .NET's not that massive, right, or, right. or wasn't at yeah. the very least. So it wasn't much of a struggle to pick up C-sharp. The syntax is mostly the same, scandalously so, in fact. But yeah, I, I, do, do you have Muller uh, over in the US? I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. No, nope. Uh, nope. no, they're very big in, uh, over in the UK and in Europe. It's it, like brands of, they do yogurts and milkshakes and milks, or, you know, all that sort of stuff. The, the yogurts are pretty good if you ever make it over here. I've been promised free yogurt as an employee, but I am yet to receive it because uh, I started working in lockdown. Consequently, I've never not worked from home for them and I've never been into the office. Are you imagining the office is just, just full of yogurt and dairy products? Like in, my imag- <laughs> in my imagination, that's exactly what it's like. There's definitely cows the way I'm imagining it. So there probably isn't. I, I think where the office is, it's so far from the cows that... Uh, yeah, you know, it's just not happening. But I would like to imagine it. That sounds like fun. Yeah, oh, over here we have things like Chobani and Yoplait and things like that. But no, don't know them. But uh, yeah, they're they're a good company to work for, though, and they're keeping me very busy, which I like. I like to be busy. I don't. Uh, I always like to have plenty to do. So um, I think we are going to talk a little bit, or mostly about uh, functional programming today. How did you get from you know just you know working with C sharp? in the early days and .NET, and then uh, move on to uh, functional programming. Sure. Well, ooh, you're asking, yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly where the transition came now. But it was a thing I was aware of for a very, very long time, this idea there was this thing, functional programming. And I, I don't know who chose the name. It's rather a poorly chosen name. I mean, functional programming. So what's the other stuff? Like non func no, you know what I mean? It's, uh, I mean, yeah, it's because it's all composed functions. But it, it, you could, yeah, I was just, I was aware that it was a thing and it was popular and it was there. And I tried looking up stuff like monads, and I don't recommend anyone ever do that. Don't, because if you try looking on Wikipedia on like the official definition of of monads, it'll make your head hurt. It's it's all very 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 heavy mathsy. Like f to g is g of f of f. I don't really <laughs> understand any of that sort of nonsense. I, as much as I like maths, and as much as I'm truthfully telling my children that maths is cool, I'm sadly not a mathematician. Yeah, don't. But what I am is my calculus days. You know? <laughs> what I am is an engineer in effect. And so what I am interested in is what does it do? What's it for? How do I do it? That's that's the sort of, you know, I need an engineer's description, which is what I eventually finally got some point down the line. And I think it was mostly a matter of, of looking up some like some of these sort of how to do it in C sharp or how to do it in .NET or, or stuff like that. And that was where I finally sort of got my head around what we were actually doing. Because so I, I tried previously to get into like F sharp and similar, but I could again, quite get my head around it. Looking back now, now that I kind of understand how the process works, it's not all that complicated. You just kind of got to slightly adjust the way you're thinking, if you see what I mean. So if there's there's functional programming, then what are the other programming styles (laughs) called? Well, as far as I'm aware, there's three basic paradigms. Cool, I guess, yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, they're paradigms. And uh, the analogy I use when I give talks is it's like uh, genres of music. You know, I could pick up a guitar and I can play, um, uh, yeah, I could play rock music on it, or I could uh, completely adjust my style and I could play country and western if I have no soul. And <laughs> yeah, I'm being mean. But um, <laughs> you see what I mean? It's the same instrument, it's just completely different styles. Of, of play or work in, in our case. So as, as from what I understand, the three basic paradigms are uh, procedural, object-orientated, and functional. Uh, there may be others, but I'm not aware of them. Pre- I mean, procedural is pretty much just like the most basic sort of start at the beginning and go down to the end. That's, that's like, that's it, you know, as far as I know. Uh, we're probably all basically acquainted with that almost the moment we learn programming. Object orientation, I would, I would hope everyone's aware of, of what object orientation is. It's been the dominant paradigm for a very, very long time now. I don't even know how far back that goes. Probably since we're probably talking like since the late seventies or something, are we? I, I don't really know. But functional is functional is actually very old. This is something I always like to stress when I talk about it. It is actually very old. It's not. It's not just a new and trendy thing like whatever the latest popular JavaScript framework is. The origins of of functional programming date back to something like the late 1800s in some mathematics papers. I'm not going to pretend like I necessarily understood those papers. I located copies, but again, I'm not a mathematician. But the big, uh, but one of the big developments comes in the 50s. There was a gentleman called Alonzo Church, again, a mathematician, not a developer, who came up with ideas like effectively what we would call an arrow function. I think he gave a different name for it, but it was basically an arrow function. And they started to play around with this idea of writing little functions and then passing other functions in as parameters to functions and playing around this way to to create some really interesting, complicated mathematics. As a programming language, it dates to the 1960s, where uh, the first functional language was Lisp, which was uh, developed by a gentleman called John McCarthy. And so functional has been around for ages, and apparently Lisp still has its fans. I, I've heard it's a really wild programming language, but uh, I've honestly never worked in it. Oh, hello, Mr. Caleb. Hello. How's it going? How are y'all? Yeah. Fun. Sorry, I'm late. My wife had some car trouble, and I ended up having to go pick my son up from school. So, but I'm here now. So, Caleb, we were just talking about functional programming. So, Simon was just giving us a bit of a history of functional programming. Yeah, yeah. I was just, I was just trying to emphasize that it's not, it's old. You know, like, like I said, in the programming terms, it's, it goes back to the back to the '60s, and it's been around ever since then. I don't think it's ever really gone away as such. It's, it's kind of bubbled there in the background, and it's always had its fans. I don't think it was always necessarily very mainstream until fairly recently. I don't know exactly when it broke through, as it were. It's been a bit. It's, it almost reminds me a little of, uh, of like the Linux world where. Linux is amazing and it's had its fans and there's people who are very serious about this business that did Linux, but as a mainstream thing where, you know, like ordinary developers would be necessarily think it was worth learning, that's somewhat relatively recent with the advent of stuff like, I suppose, containerization has kind of driven that to being a, again, it was always there, but as a mainstream thing within the developer community where we all were expecting to learn a little bit of it. But in a way, it's a similar sort of thing, which I think has driven the, the breakthrough of functional programming, because one of the things it enables rather strongly is stuff like uh, containerization in terms of running lots of parallel processes. This is something that functional programming does very well as compared to object orientation. Within the functional paradigm, you've got this concept of pure functions or uh, the, te- the proper like uh, technical term is referential transparency. But the idea is that you should write these functions which have absolutely no side effects. They they take in whatever their parameters are, and that's all they depend on. And they will always give the same answer given those same parameters. That's what referential transparency is. So you get you've got this int and this string, for example, and it will always give this output, no matter what. No matter what the state of this whole system is in, no matter anything. You run for the whole life of the universe and these parameters give this answer. Is that almost like having every function or every method being static? Where no, that would be a, that would be a whole different. That would be kind of somewhat of a ish. Um, you're not creating a you're not creating an object, but you have to pass everything into it to get it to work the way you want. I mean, you, you can do it within objects. You know, you can create a pure function within an object. I mean, but and a static function can still rely on a static state. Right. So you know, you could have a you could have a static um, state object within your static class, which your static function depends on. That would not be a pure function. 
because you've got this state thing which is being updated by your function. A, fun- a, a pure function has absolutely no side effects anywhere. It doesn't affect anything else necessarily. That's, that's, that's the idea. The idea is that for the maximum possible, this is how uh, there are many concepts behind functional, but that's one of them is that to the maximum amount possible, that's what you should base your program on, these, these pure functions. So as you can imagine, when you're running a whole load of stuff in parallel, things like resource contention just sort of goes away. Because if there's no common thing shared between them, then they can't tread on each other's toes, as it were. They they don't depend on anything besides themselves. So then you uh, even, sh- you're even passing in state. Yeah. If um, if anyone has ever dealt with React, I pre- that pretty much runs on functional paradigm. And if you ever done, worked on things like what is it reduces and things like that, it's it's based on the idea that you've got these functions where we've got the old state and the instruction on what transformation needs to take place, and then you return new state. That would be a functional way of dealing with state. Um, so, and again, you could test that. This is the other marvelous thing about functional programming. It is incredibly testable. Because if you've got this concept of no side effects from your functions, then you can literally pass in whatever you want and get back an answer and test based on that. You don't necessarily have to do all of this setup that a, a state-driven application needs. So that's... I think for from the people I've talked to, what the big attraction for a lot of folks is just how incredibly testable the thing is. It tends to be more, in general, it tends to be more robust as well. Because uh, with lack of side effects, you're not supposed to, the idea of throwing errors, you're not really supposed to be doing that as part of functional. So functions tend to behave in a very predictable manner. So when it comes to state, because uh, I've done some work with React, and I've done like NGRX with Angular, right, in the idea of having a copy of that state locally and digging into the tree. How does functional programming manage that? Do you make databases calls for whatever you need, or do you have that state that you're holding on to, like you said, the old version versus the new version? Well, the function itself is just going to be old version, new version, return. Uh, Now, when you start to deal with I.O., this is where we start potentially to have to make compromises because, I mean, I I know that the various pure functional languages out there probably got all their own answers to this. Now, I I don't work in in a pure functional world because I'm a C-sharp developer. So, but from what I understand, you have to you have to make a compromise somewhere when it comes to because I/O is is never going to be pure, as it were, because you're going to have to deal with the external world. You're going to have to deal with the file system. Or, you know, what if someone just goes and uh, deletes that file? Well, hey, it's a behaving unpredictably sudden, right? Yeah. So, you know, that that doesn't work. What if you're dealing with people? Well, people are as impure as it gets, as it were. So, you know, you have to make a compromise there. And I, I believe there are all sorts of systems where you can sort of wrap some sort of functional level around the the impurity or something like that. But the again, I'm a C-sharp developer, so I, I don't necessarily fret over pure functional throughout end-to-end because I don't need to. But the way I imagine it is, uh, so the, this is the metaphor I usually use. There's a shadow actually has two parts, if you look at a shadow. It has the, the dark, solid bit in the middle. That's called an umbra. And there's the gray, fuzzy bit around the outside. That's the penumbra. So that's the impure bit, is the, the penumbra there. That's the bit where you have to compromise on, on our purity. But I would like to try and make the, the black bit, the umbra, as big as possible and minimize to the greatest extent I can the fuzzy bit around the outside. Because everything inside the middle bit, once you pass this sort of outer layer of fuzziness, is going to be pure and testable and solid. And that's, that's what we're aiming for. Have the guys asked, uh, or have y'all talked about F-sharp? I'm assuming you may already have. <laughs> no, you have? No. Well, I guess my question is, as a .NET developer, how do you approach functional programming in C-sharp? And are you familiar with F-sharp, and do you use that any in your, your day-to-day work? Okay, do I use F-sharp? <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I hope you guys are ready for the flurry of angry emails. <laughs> I have dabbled a little in F-sharp. It seems very nice. I have got no problem with it. If my boss came to me and said, I'm not going to, he's Scottish, I won't do the accent. He's a nice chap, but I, I can't do the accent. But if he were to ask me to go learn F sharp because he wanted it on the team, I'd say, yep, let's go. Let's go. It seemed like a good idea, but I haven't done it. It has a learning curve on it, which, you know, is fine. I don't mind. I, I, I'm a developer and I'm in this business because I like to learn and that's fine. I don't mind the learning curve. But here's the thing. So if we went and adopted CF sharp, 
which there isn't a great deal of knowledge out there in the world at large, then we're taking a dependency on a programming language which we would have to learn, and then every subsequent developer we take on will either have to learn it or have to know it already. And that's fine if we want to make that investment, if there's real benefit to be had. And it sounds like it's a really lovely programming language, so maybe. But until we're at this point, I think, where knowledge of F-sharp is mainstream and common and we all basically know it, then until we reach that point, I'm tending away from F-sharp and more towards, well, we can do most of the same stuff in C-sharp, which we can. I mean, they are kind of joined at the hip in a way. They compile, of course, to the same common language. And a lot of new features of C-sharp come from requests made by the F-sharp guys. So we're getting, the F-sharp guys are requesting all this new functional stuff, and we, the C-sharp guys, are actually gaining a lot of the same benefit. Now, there is stuff you can do in F-sharp you can't do in C-sharp, that's completely true. And there's certain useful restrictions F-sharp can put on your code that we can't do in C-sharp. Like, in F-sharp, you can have everything immutable, which is marvelous. We can't really do that in C-sharp. Well, it's not that they can't, it's that I believe Microsoft won't because that would break backwards compatibility. So it's not a thing. They've kind of touched around the edges of wiggling that, but I don't think we're quite there yet. So, But C-sharp knowledge, on the other hand, is so common that, you know, like go to a software developer conference, chuck a stone, and you'll probably hit someone that knows C-sharp. You know, it's it's that right. common. You yeah. know? I apologize in advance for the angry emails from passionate F-sharp developers you're about to receive. No, uh, well, here's the thing. Like you, I'm familiar with F-sharp, but I have never used it in an application. And I think it's great that it's there and it has lots of applications. And I think, like you said, a lot of the improvements in C-sharp, some of them were ideas for F-sharp, which is wonderful. Yeah, That doesn't mean it has to necessarily be a mainstream language. And I understand, right, the learning curve and how it benefits you, right? We're, we're, we're in a similar position right now we're starting to create Blazor apps. And the reason we're mm. doing that is because we can hire a C-sharp developer mm. and train them up on how Blazor does its Razor pages and its front end, right? And then they're off to the races. We don't have to teach yeah. someone Angular or React or whatever. So I get it. Mm. Yeah. And you, I mean, another way, you, you can use it immediately if you wish. And I know that they interop. So you can drop an F-sharp project into your C-sharp project. So if you have one little bit of the code base where it really would be like a massive benefit to have a... I mean, F-sharp can do front-ends and all that. It can do everything. Everything that you can do in C-sharp, F-sharp can do, and that's fine. But uh, I know what tends to suit functional particularly well is things like rule engines or, or data processors or anything where you're kind of putting in data and getting data. You know, Stuff like that is what functional does really, really, really well. So if you wanted to have a little bit of like that, you can you can stick an F-sharp project in your C-sharp solution and have a little bit. And I think you, int- I've seen it done. It's, it, I think it's kind of like you interact with it almost like they're static functions or something, and they're just kind of there. So you, you could have a bit, but by and large, I, I'm happy enough that C-sharp can do most of most or all of what I would ever need. Plus, we don't have to go through the learning curve. And I mean, F-sharp, like I said, it looks lovely, but it's not like it's not just C-sharp with a different API in the back end. It's, it looks totally different. It's really very different. And it's functional from the ground up. So it's a whole different way of working. Unlike functional programming C-sharp, you can, you're basically writing C-sharp code and it feels like C-sharp code. We're just, we're just putting certain restrictions on ourselves from doing certain things. So Visual Studio wants to make classes for everything that's in a C-sharp project. So how do you, how do you really get started with functional programming in Visual Studio with, with C-sharp? Well, I mean, I would still use classes, to be honest. I mean, um, C-sharp is a hybrid language, and uh, Microsoft have actually sp- uh, officially stated that. I was at I was at NDC Oslo not so long ago, and they had the, the, the head developer from uh, from the C-sharp team over there. What's his name? Mads uh, Mans, uh, Forgive me, I can't remember his name. But Mads Torgerson. No, Mads Torgerson. Yes, yeah, so they had Mads Torgerson there. And he said the whole idea was that with each release of C-sharp that goes on, they're intending to add more functional content to support the paradigm. And yeah, since he said that, uh, that that is exactly what's played out. We're getting some really lovely functional content with uh, the last few releases of C-sharp. Uh, record types is relatively new, and it's rapidly become one of my favorite things in C-sharp. And that's, that's functional. That's the whole point of that is it's functional. It's a way of 
copying an object, or rather it's it's kind of a replacement for the old way we might have updated an object. Instead, you make a copy with one difference, and that's that's a functional way of doing that. You don't touch the original. The touched original should be considered immutable, that is, unchangeable. And you make a new one that looks like it with a with an alteration. That's that's functional programming. So they're and pattern recognition. They're doing loads now with some really lovely pattern recognition. And that's that's gorgeous. The the syntax now and that we've got in there for you know that that new um like the uh the switch operations and stuff like that. That is that is nice. That is nice, and I use it as often as I can for the sheer sake of it's so cool, why not? And, and again, that is that's functional. Pattern recognition is another functional, um, another part of the functional paradigm. Pardon me. For anyone who's not familiar with the term pattern recognition, it's just imagine switch statements with knobs on. Basically, it's it's like super advanced, powerful switch statements. Except you could do some really complicated selects beyond just switch on a string. Is the string this or that? You know, it's it's way beyond that. We're talking things like the properties of an object, the type of an object, and far more complicated stuff like that. That's that's where we're getting deep into pattern recognition rather than a, a switch. And it's and again, we're getting that now. We've pretty much got that in C sharp. That's that's really nice as well. Time is of the essence when identifying and resolving issues in your software. And our friends at Raygun are here to help. Their brand new alerting feature is now available for crash reporting and real user monitoring to make sure you're quickly notified of the errors, crashes, and front-end performance issues that matter most to you and your business. Set thresholds for your alert based on an increase in error count, a spike in load time, or new issues introduced in the latest deployment, along with custom filters that give you even greater control. Assign multiple users to ensure the right team members are notified with alerts linked directly to the issue in Raygun, taking you to the root cause faster. Never miss another mission-critical issue in your software again. Try Raygun Alerting today and create a world-class issue resolution workflow that gives you and your customer peace of mind. Visit raygun.com to learn more. Their simple usage plans start from as little as $4 per month with unlimited apps and users. That's raygun.com to start your free 14-day trial. So uh, you're, if, we, if you're using classes then you're newing up an object. So then what's functional about C-sharp is then how you do your methods? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how they do it in pure functional languages, whether they have classes or not, but you're, at the end of the day, you will still need a method of organizing your code in any case. So whether we call it a class or we don't call it a class, we're still going to have to have a logical grouping of code in uh, in pieces. Otherwise, your code base is like one file 10 million lines long and it's unmanageable. I, I have seen code bases that look like that, by the way. Us too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I'm, I'm not naming any names but uh yeah oh gosh miss me i have seen i've some seen code written by some people who should really have known better but nowhere uh, if anyone from my current employer is listening not you guys uh <laughs> just to reassure them but yeah no so yeah I mean, yes you still instantiate classes but that's again that's just more a case of how do we how do we group this stuff together and of course c-sharp is not a functional a pure functional language we still can break all the functional rules if we wish. To write functional C-sharp, you've kind of got to pretend you can't. And you'll probably still have to make the odd compromise here and there. I mean, you will have situations where you have to deal with like uh, third-party APIs or you have to deal with uh, who knows what, external, God, calm. You might have to deal with calm. Who, who likes doing that? But we all have to do these things. So there'll probably still be the odd place where you have to make a compromise there. But other than that, they basically just pretend. So is sure. is it really the the golden rule of functional programming is that y- you have a function or, or a method or whatever you want to call it and you're only allowed to interact with the things you feed into it and not any global variables and all that stuff and then it always has to return the same thing um, because That's of that right yeah well the same thing given the same parameters if, if your function literally always return the same thing it would not be yeah of course function. yeah yeah <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, yeah absolutely that that's one of the goals yes it's as I say, it's called a pure function if you mm. want the the term for it. And yes, and as I say, the advantages is things like stability and testability. That's a big one. Mm. And like I said, it also has a side benefit for things like running parallel processes because uh, it, one of the things that tend if you've got a whole load of threads running in parallel, the thing that tends to make them fail is things like there's a common state. Thread one grabbed it, did a thing. Thread three grabbed it, and you could have resource contention, you could have race conditions, you can have all sorts of things. I'm not saying you couldn't still have more complicated, higher-level race conditions if you've got a large, complex system, but a lot of these problems tend to go away once you adopt that sort of paradigm. Uh, I've mentioned 
I mentioned immutability. That's another important one. This whole idea that once a variable has been set, you can't change it. You consider it to be every variable is effectively a const. You can't change them once you've set them. And is that does well, that extend ask, to local variables? Or? Go on. Well, yeah. Why I think Ryan and I have a similar question. He asked if that right works for local variables. And my question is, does this affect how you use getters and setters on class properties? I basically don't use, as a rule, I don't mm. use setters, excepting okay. when I instantiate the object in the first place, gotcha. as a rule. If I were to follow the functional paradigm and I wanted to change a vari- you know, a property, I, let's say I've got five variable, uh, five properties on my class, let's call them A, B, C, D, and E, for the sake of argument, and I want to change D, following the functional programming, I would leave the original untouched, and I would create a new instance of that object, except this time there's one one property different. Now, in the old days, until very recently, that was literally like, make a whole new one. But now we've got record types, and we've got this rather swish new syntax that allows us to, you, you could do something like make it the old one as with, and then put a little curly braces in to say this is the change I want you to make. And that's, that's basically it. That's really nice. It's really nice. Everyone who, if anyone's not, yeah, if anyone hasn't seen record types, go check it out. It is, it's probably one of my favorite features in uh, for some years now. Probably before then, it'd be. Re- I did really like it when they introduced switch operations. Before that, I'd probably talking link. Now, link is an interesting case. Link is functional. That's another thing. Probably a lot of people don't realize it's basically functional programming. If you do link, if you think about it. So look at a look at a select. A select doesn't touch the original. It creates a copy of the original returned to you, and it takes functions as a property. Now, of course, we write the function as an arrow, as a little, uh, you know, little arrow statement, but it's still a function. So this is another concept from functional programming. The proper term, I believe, is higher order functions. But for you, the rest of us, it's functions passed around as variables. That's what that is. And it allows you to compose larger complex behaviors using functions kind of like Lego bricks. Yes. This is really why they call it functional programming. It's not because the other guys are non-functional. It's because we deal with functions. There is a rule of thumb in functional programming that if there is a problem, answer is functions. And it's mostly true. But that's uh, but when you take a func as a parameter, that's functional programming it, or an element thereof. So that's how link is. That's how, you, that's how the where clauses work and the selects and all the rest of that. Effectively, it treats things with uh, with some level of immutability. So, if you're doing link, that's that's it. That's what we want to do. And the goal really is to kind of take the rest of C sharp and put it into link. Seems um, to me like uh, if I was writing a, organizing a project like this, I'd probably make everything a partial class. So every function was its own partial class file to kind of keep it, you know, isolated in my mind and visually that. All I'm doing is this method, this function right here, and it can't get anything else, even though it is technically part of a class. Mm. I don't know. To be honest, I w- I'm just happy to. I'm happy enough to work in classes. I don't know whether that's some sort of betrayal of the functional brotherhood or or, or not. But <laughs> I, I don't. At least in the C sharp world, I I don't have a problem with doing it. But you know, like I said, if nothing else, it's good for organization. Of course, you want to do things like uh, you still want to do dependency injection and all that sort of stuff, and and that is good for that. And, yeah, it, it's a nice way of not holding too much in memory, I suppose, at one time. So, you know, yeah, that's, that, that's all fine. But you could do some really, really clever things once you start passing functions around. Now, there's there's deeper stuff in the functional world that you kind of can and can't do in C-sharp. It's kind of possible, but you've got to do a lot of hacking to make it to make it work. Now, there's a very nice concept in the functional world called currying, which is nothing to do with delicious Indian food. It's got it's actually named after a gentleman called Haskell Curry, who I believe has got something like three programming languages named after him. And so currying is uh let's say that I've got a function. Let's say for the sake of argument it's an add function and it takes two parameters and they're both integers. So I could pass in, and all it does is take whatever two parameters, whatever two integers you just pass me, and it returns the sum. You could call it sum if you like; it doesn't really matter. Uh, and you wouldn't do this in the real world, but this is a silly example. So let's say I give it a ten, and uh, I don't know, five, five, ten out of five, I get about fifteen. We. So let's imagine for a moment it was a curried function, and I gave it a ten. Well, then what do I get back? Now, if this was a classical normal function, you would get back uh, well, you get an error because it's got two parameters, and you gave me one. In a curried function, you get back a function. You get back 
the sum function where one of the values has already been filled in and it's just waiting for you to complete the set. So effectively, by giving it a single parameter and giving it a 10, I have created a add 10 function. And every single time I, I use this new function, it'll always just add 10 to whatever I give it. And I can use it as many times as I like, and that's exactly what it'll do. It's, uh, I've, it's also, I can also call this partial application. I, I know there's a subtle difference between currying and partial application, but for the C-sharp world, it doesn't matter a great deal because strictly speaking, we can, we can kind of do it a bit. There are ways. There is a way. Um, I've seen it done. And what you've basically got to do is write a whole load of extension methods. You'd have to have your function to be curried made into a func, you know, one of those delegate uh, funks. And you'd have to accept the func as a parameter into the extension method and return a new func where we're holding the values you just passed me in memory in the extension method. And when the func executes, it executes in the context of inside the extension method. And it, it does work. It does work. But it's it's a little bit of a faff. Whereas, of course, in a pure functional world, you get this straight out of the box. That's how it works. F sharp, that's how it works. It, it has the advantage that you can write yourself a whole load of functionality with lots of parameters, and you could just pass in some of the parameters with a few different values, and you made stuff a whole load of different functions with subtly different functionality, where you just fill in the specifics of probably whatever data we're passing into it. So is the, is the use case basically that you can build a function, um, but you don't want to build one super complicated function. So instead of doing that, you, you have lots of functions that, that together can build this complicated function it's more like it's more like a sub uh you have subways uh, over there you know the the subways that the sandwich people it's more like uh so imagine your subways you know you 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 your nice person behind the behind the counter comes along and says uh, do you want lettuce yeah i love lettuce do you, do you want cucumber yeah i love cucumber do you want do you want mm. peppers no i don't like peppers you see what i mean you you actually do write one big long function with a whole load of information that needs to be passed in but to an extent, I could say, I could um, call this and I'll just say, I don't know, peppers. Uh, so, you know, for the salad, I'll pass in a salad selections object where it says I, I like lettuce and I like olives. Uh, we're still going to pass in the other objects like uh, do you want cheese and uh, which bread do you want? But I have, I've passed in the which veg do you want object. And so that means I have got a preset function now, which has got all of my, all of my requirements built in. And I just need to fill it the specifics. Cause let's imagine I'm very, very, I'm very variable in my taste and I like to have different cheeses on different days. Well, I've got the stuff that's always the same set and everyone could call this function the once and have all of their, uh, their preferences preset. And then you just pass in the specifics. Now, this is getting into a metaphor, which is possibly slightly too complicated and specific, but the, I mean, the, the, the example I usually use in talks is a parser. Let's say I write one single parser, which has all sorts of variables inside it, like given a CSV file, how do the lines break? How do the, uh, how do the, uh, the fields break? What do I do with, uh, with the fields? Uh, which field am I interested in? I could write one single function that is basically like the be-all and end-all of parsers. And I could just pass two parameters in that say that this is uh, new line and comma. Well, now I've got a parser which will get new line, will take any CSV content to break it on new line comma. And then I can later pass on, well, I, I want the fourth field. I'll pass four into it. Right, break this CSV, get the fourth field, pass it out again. And I could call this thing five times, each time specifying a different field, and it'll, it'll do the same thing. Take the CSV, break it down. So it's it's a way of writing a whole load of different... You might otherwise have to either write one great big long function and always pass in all parameters every single time. Or you might have to write lots of little functions which are nearly identical but subtly different. Instead, we can just write big one, big long one, sure, but then we can kind of break it down and treat it like lots of little ones. So I was curious if you use any tuples in your functional programming. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So I use tuples. Yep. Again, that's 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 not so far away from the functional paradigm. Mm. I think it's probably one of the reasons it's been chucked in there. It's, it, you know, it's, it's it's a disposable object, isn't it? It's yeah. yep. effectively it's, it's an object that exists for a very limited amount of time for a single purpose. Then you chuck it in the bin. So it's interesting it's, because I've I've started using them more in recently in the code base I'm working. There are certain parts I can't touch, right? <laughs> Just <laughs> because of you know the code, but I want to be able to get more results back i want to extend a method right and so i've the way around you know modifying some of the strings of code that i really can't do is i've been using those right and whether you call them tuples or tuples i don't care but but then i can get 
more values back and be able to use them without having to make significant modifications to code that that I don't want to break, right? Sure. No, I, I, I quite like tuples. I have to admit, I haven't used them for a little while. I did start doing, have you guys ever heard of the advent of code? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can see yeah. some nods. So I did actually set myself a project of cracking a whole load of days of the of that using almost as pure a functional code as I could in C sharp. And I used tuples extensively for that. When I was like sort of I mean, another feature that tends to pop up of functional programming is rather than having lots of lines of code, what you tend to have is chains of of uh, like um what do you call like a uh, fluent interfaces, stuff like that, where where it's like this dot this dot this dot this, and you kind of write it in a big long line going down the page. That's how a lot of functional code ends up looking. I actually, I, I love the the fluent style, whether it's fluent migrations or fluent assertions, the the NuGet package or whatnot. It's for me. It's uh, I enjoy being able to build right methods and then chain them that way and get the correct result back. And, and I'm guessing that to, to a greater or lesser extent, they'll have to be following functional coding mm-hmm. styles behind all of that. But yes, absolutely, I, I do. Uh, I do love tuples, though, and definitely the. Um, it's worth one of the criticisms, though. I do tend to come across is if you've written all of your all of your code like this great big long um, fluent interface, you know, fluent style. Then how can you uh, how can you debug it? How can you uh, how can you log it? Stuff like that. And, and that's a fair criticism. I mean, one method is uh, uh, there's a there's a kind of function that I've uh, it's, I've heard it called a tap. I've heard it called also a t. I've heard it called all sorts of things. And it's so inside your functional flow of functions where you've got like thing go one turning into thing two, you can stick something in there which sort of sits in the middle, is incapable of changing it. So it's a, a little extension method somewhere or something that takes an object in a parameter and then returns it unchanged. But as well as that. You take in um, a function which does something with it, which will probably be login. So there's ways. It's, I think it's a tap in the sense of like a wire tap or something like that. I guess where you're you're kind of listening in on the wire, but you're not actually changing it. So there are ways of doing this sort of thing. But to be honest, I would personally have no problem in a C sharp context with with actually writing rather than writing the big long flow, which looks gorgeous and simple. But for the sake of we, you know, this is real world C sharp. We need a lot of login, especially if it's a really horrid something you have to be doing where we need to do a lot of monitoring. I would have no problem with just putting each each one on a different line and you know putting a log in between so that we can log to our heart's content. Because it's, you know, again we're we're talking about professional coding in a in an industrial environment. We have to have logs. We have to have all this stuff in place. It makes it means you lose some of the, the lovely benefits of beautiful elegance uh, you know functional code, but it's it's work. What are you gonna do? I, I don't code the same way at home as I do when I'm at work. If you uh, if you see my meaning, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, other way, I do like that style quite a lot. Uh, now, but the way that you would deal, I mean, the other way, the way that you would kind of put all of that together, the way that you would turn all of your um, your functions, all of your sort of put all your code base into that style is create a, the easiest way is create yourself a little extension method. It's an extension method that takes a generic, it attaches to this as a T, whatever T might be, so it attaches to everything. And that's, you know, this is, you've got your variable there, which is this, whatever this is. And then you take a parameter, which takes uh, a func, which converts t this, whatever the current t is, into another t. Stick that in your code base. I've I've seen this called map. I've seen this called bind. I've seen this called all sorts of things. Stick that in, and basically you can do something like, you know, my starting value dot map and then a little arrow method and dot map, another little arrow method, and and so on. You could write this whole long, complex sequence of code lines, but actually it's all in, in arrow functions. The simple This is the simplest version of something called a monad, by the way. That is what one is. This is the most ridiculously simple one imaginable, but that's what they are for anyone that's been wondering what the heck these things actually are. Well, this is what they are. We've done that previously, created extension methods when we were using Dynamics in c and we would convert dynamics to expand our objects to be able to manipulate some of the properties, you know, yeah, and yeah. remove them incorrectly. And then we could use an extension to convert them back, yeah. which may seem like overhead, but for our use case, it worked. I, I think I think extension methods get a bad rep, but used in the right way, they are amazing and powerful. Now, the wrong way, and I've seen people do this, and they really do need to stop doing it, and that is things like putting business logic in an extension method. And I think, I personally think that way madness lies. 
For me, an extension method is a way of taking away some annoying boilerplate code that I write again and again and again and get bored of. Just write a tiny little like one-line extension method and all that boring boilerplate just goes away. And it's incredible just how lovely and neat you can make your code base by writing some, as long as keep them static, keep them small, don't put business logic in them because the whole purpose of a, you know, I, the metaphor I use is it's an extension method is like that snarf action figure that you you own somewhere. You want to have it. You don't want to get rid of it. But at the same time, you also don't want anyone else to see it. You know, that's, that's extension methods. You stuff them down deep in the back of your code base where no one's going to see it because no one cares. And, and that's, that's where they use. Whereas uh, your business logic, you want that right up at the front where everyone can see it because that's, that's how your application works. That's what it does. That's, that's the crucial for the business. But um, yeah, in, in my simple example, though, my, my little monad, my little map, if you wanted to start making it really interesting, what you do is for a start, stick a try catch inside that map. Suddenly your application is nearly incapable of ever erroring out. There's one use you could do. But then there's better ways of doing it. You could have it return. So there's a concept of something called a maybe, which is that, for me at least, it is that perfect return type that we've all wanted throughout our careers, where you don't want to just return the value. You want to return a a, a return type object where it says, did it work? Did it not work? Also, here's the value when it worked. Here's the details when it didn't. Maybe it's kind of solve all of that for you in one in one go. Uh, you start off with a static, uh, with an abstract, sorry. You can start with an abstract, call it maybe. Like inherit off it twice. Well, one of them something and one of them nothing. The something's got a value in it. The nothing's got nothing in it. Or maybe call it error. Maybe it was something or an error. that You could contain the error in it. And then inside your map, you have it say, well, okay, here's this function you want to execute. I'm going to put that in a try catch. If it fails, instead of the something, I'm going to return the error. If if it was an error you just gave me, then I'm going to return another error. And and that's so that means that if a previous step failed, I ain't going to bother executing the function. So the best analogy I ever came up for this idea was it was when well, I didn't come up with it. It was uh, Scott Vlashin. Scott Vlashin. He's, he's he does a brilliant website, which I reckon even if you're not interested in F Sharp, I honestly strongly recommend checking out his website, uh, F Sharp Fun and Profit. It's not just for F Sharp fans. He does some really brilliant articles just on like the conceptual side of this, and he calls this uh, railway orientated architecture. And like in his uh, world, it's like um, you've got this, these two parallel train tracks with a series of points along it, and each point is like a function you want to. So uh, the example I use in talks is converting Fahrenheit to uh, to Celsius. I I used to work for an American company, and uh, and I would say things because I'm British, and uh, we ask about the weather. That is not a cliche. We do this. We do talk about the weather really quite a lot, and uh, I would ask them how the weather, the temperature was outside, and they would say it was a hundred degrees, and I would say goodness me, 100 degrees, that, that, that sounds like you should all be dead. Because 100 degrees to me, working in Celsius, is hot enough to boil water. But and of course, they mean Fahrenheit. Now, I can't remember off the top of my head what the Fahrenheit conversion is. It's something like, like divide by 32, add 100, multiply by five. It's something of that sort. Look it up if you're interested. But you know, we, we could do something like this, this quite easily, a series of steps. And maybe we could then we could convert it to a string and, and prettify it a bit and all sorts, you know. So you've got this whole long series of, uh, of steps, each of which is a little arrow function. Uh, so basically, our arrow function is a potential for executing a bit of code. And by creating this this maybe monad, we are wrapping something around the execution of each function. It's like there's an extra level. You, like the developer is passing in all the code and the monad is providing this space where we're saying, okay, there's this thing you've given me. I'm going to put it in a safe spot and I'm going to give it a go. And if it doesn't work, then fine, no one minds. And then on your trail, on your railway metaphor, it's like each step of this is, is, a, is a point, each function. And if at any point one of these things explodes, then it switches tracks. It stops being along the top track, which is like the happy path of it worked, it worked, it worked, it worked. I've got a value at every point. It switches down to the error path where it didn't work. And from then on, it doesn't execute any more functions. It just sort of glides down to the station at the end, containing the error perhaps within it so that you can report it at the end. Sounds a lot like RxJS. I'm going to have to plead ignorance. I don't know what that is. Oh, okay. It's, it is tooling that's used in Angular, creating observables that you can then filter and map and you can you can chain them 
do next mm-hmm. and it will it will air out gracefully it will clean up after itself that kind of stuff so yeah yeah, it's probably it's probably that sort of idea. And another little side benefit is if you're if you're defining all these these little bits of of, of the process inside these little arrow functions, then any object you create within the one of those arrows falls out of scope the moment it's executed. So if you've got like yeah, so if you if you think about it though, if you in the old days you could quite easily write a, a an object orientated function which was like a thousand lines long, and I've seen people do that, where you define a large complex object at the top, and then but that subject is still in scope at the bottom. Whereas with this sort of um, monad style development, this sort of fluent style, that everything only exists for the precise time it needs to exist, and then it's disposed of, or at least it's subject to garbage collection immediately. And that's that's another nice little little side benefit. Plus, of course, no more errors anymore, as the uh, as the Stranglers once sang, which is, is one of the big ones for me. But it does mean that your programs stray very much on the side of, I am not going to error no matter what I do, mm. which is good, but you know, you're going to have to put it, you're going to have to make efforts to put in all your your taps or, or whatever to make sure that the errors are also reported. Uh, and that's that's where some of the skill comes in in this. Because, I mean, it is the claim of some pure functional languages like, what is it RabbitMQ's developed in? I cannot remember. But uh, it's, the, it's the claim of some pure functional languages that once you stand the application up, you can't kill it no matter what happens. Like, this thing will last as long as the computer lasts nearly. And I've got no reason to believe that's not the case. But C Sharp's not a pure functional language. It's a hybrid. But we, we can aim towards that. That's the horizon we're pointing at and aiming towards is completely eliminating all errors ever. Which would we would wouldn't that be lovely? So you mean you don't have to restart services on a daily basis? <laughs> oh, <there's> me now. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. you could still have memory leaks and all that sort of thing. There's, there's, that's still going to be a problem for probably in every programming language ever. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But a lot of your problems of unhandled exceptions mm-hmm. resulting right. in uncertain execution order of code, which is mm-hmm. one of our our oldest problems in the C sharp world, like. Why did this bit of code execute here? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it's because this bit over here threw an unhandled exception, which made it jump over here. Which that problem goes away in the functional world, where the order of um, the order of execution of the functions is set pretty much. Like this, this idea of putting try catches around big blocks of code and it behaving strangely it kind of goes away to some extent. So we just have a, a few minutes left. What are kind of the, some final things that you want our listeners to know about functional programming and functional programming in C sharp? Uh, for functional programming in C sharp, one of the best books I have ever read on the subject was written by Enrico Buonanno. It's published by Manning. It's a marvelous book called Functional Programming in C sharp. It's one of the best programming books I've ever read in my entire life. I would recommend that one thoroughly. He's he's very good at explaining the concepts and coming up with ways of of implementing some of this. I've I've kind of I've done some of my own stuff since, but he kind of. He's the one I think that showed me the light, as it were, in terms of ah, this is how it's done. This is what it's all about. Now I've got it in my head. I can do. I've started doing a lot of my own stuff with this with this same sort of concept. I've written little extensions or do things like uh, loop through a set of data until a certain state is met, and, and you can do stuff like that if you start playing around with the structure of the language, uh, which I like to do. I, I've something that's not a lot of people do, but you can do some really wild things within C sharp is to start messing around with enumerators, which is where you kind of crack open an enumerable and start playing with the engine underneath it. And you could make, there's relatively few use cases for this, but the ones where you can use it, you can make some absolute magic happen because basically you've got the power to drive the enumerable in any manner that you wish. You want it to like stop and repeat or whatever. Uh, one of the things I created using this method was an enumerator, enumerable where you can compare um, the values, the like this value against the next. And I did it by cracking open the enumerator and kind of, acting like a, a juggler where we're kind of holding a value of one hand and juggling up and then passing that over to the next first hand. And uh, and I, you'll find it on my GitHub account somewhere, uh, how I did that. But that can be incredibly useful if you're, if you're like looking for, I don't know, like consecutive numbers or two numbers the same. And beyond programming, I am a big fan of learning, and uh, particularly foreign languages. I'm learning about six of the flipping things at once because I'm just that level of nerd. And I, I strongly recommend an application called Anki, A-N-K-I, I believe it's Japanese for remember or something like that. I'm not quite sure. But um, it's a flashcard system. It's a very good flashcard system. But one of the huge advantages it has is it uh, it can have an application on your 
phone and on your desktop, and it can synchronize between them. You can have like HTML and audio and video and everything inside your card. And you can have things like hierarchical cards and HTML formatting. And it, it's a marvelous, marvelous, marvelous system for learning just practically anything. And I use it literally daily. So if you wanted to learn almost anything, then I'd recommend giving Anki a look. All right. So are those your picks? Or do you have um, other picks? Okay, one more. Why not? If we want to take a bit of fun, there is an animated series on anima- on Amazon Prime, which I've enjoyed quite a lot recently, called Undone. I really, really enjoyed it. It features, now, what is her name? It's Rose Salazar, who I think you might possibly know from um, uh, the, the film adaptation of Battle Angel Alita, which came out not so long ago. It's her, it is a rotoscoped animated series where... She may be discovering an entire new relationship with time and space, or she might also be suffering from some sort of brain damage. The series is completely ambiguous on this point, and it's visually really quite stunning. I think it's only about six episodes long. It's not very long at all, but I I really enjoyed that. And unfortunately, it ended on quite a cliffhanger. And I've I've told there's another series coming, but it's the first one was released years ago, so I I shall have to wait still. I guess it must take a while to make. Oh, uh, Bob Odenkirk from um, uh, Breaking Bad is in it as well. He, he plays a very good part, as you would expect. All right, all right. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching so uh let's move on to our picks uh who wants to go first caleb you want to go what's your pick sure last one in first one out yeah my pick is a tv show called devs and it is a little bit of what you might think with the name and a lot of what you would not expect it's kind of a programming sci-fi horror uh (laughs) series yep it's interesting horror version of ice crowd or something or and well, I don't, there's a lot to spoil. So if I go into any of it, I might spoil some. So I'm going to leave it alone. But it's uh, it's created by FX and it's on Hulu. So uh, for, those, yeah. for, those of us in, for those of us in the UK, by the way, that is playing on BBC iPlayer. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I've, I've seen it. It is. I had some I had some issues with the ending, which I shan't discuss here. But yeah. uh, I, I thought it was really good. I thought it was really good. See, there you go. All right. My pick this week is going to be the Netflix show Lock and Key. Season two of Lock and Key just came out. So I really enjoyed uh, season one. My wife didn't quite get it because it's, you know, a little different and weird, you know, especially when the women went through the mirror that kind of freaked her out. So my my wife was like, this is nothing like I expected. Yeah. What is going on? It didn't make sense to her. So (laughs) she didn't want to watch it. So I watch it. My son loves it, all that kind of stuff. So, cool. yeah, Lock and Key on uh, Netflix season two. If you haven't heard about it at all, it's about uh, this family that moves into a house that uh, after their dad got murdered. And then they start finding all these magical keys throughout the house that allows them to do various different powers and things like that. And and then, of course, there's bad people and all that kind of stuff that want the keys. And so check it out if you haven't seen season one. Watch that and then watch season two. I did like that one a lot as well. I'm lucky that my wife does like it. So <laughs> the two of us are doing... I haven't seen series two yet and I'm really looking forward to it. I, I thought it was a marvellous series. All right, why? What'd you pick? Hey, so recently, um, I, was, I guess I was talking to you guys on Discord about starting up blogging again. And I finally found actually a decent platform to move my like my blog spot or whatever blog that I used to have from about 10 years ago. So it's called dev.2. And yeah, it seems pretty cool. You can write your blog in, in Markdown and things like that. And, um, and, and it seems to almost be like a little 
kind of like a social media site. Like there's actually lots and lots of other developers who are also um, blogging. And, and yeah, for once, I, I've been doing a few blogs and people are actually reading it. You know, I'm getting lots of likes and all that stuff. So it's, yeah, it makes it sound like, seem like I'm actually not just blogging for myself. So it's good. I think it's dev.2. That's the site. Yeah. It's and like your, uh, Medium site? for developers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. A lot of people much, yeah. do it from Medium. Yeah. So, yeah. so what's your site? Dev.2 slash what? Dev.2 dot, I think, slash disk drive. I don't know why I called it that. It just seems <laughs> like it's. I didn't want my name. Just there you go. That could be outro oh, no, now. Why? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I think it's my Stack Overflow name. That's why. That's 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 why I called it that. Yeah. But yeah, cool. But yeah, because I've got this new team that um, well, I started a new team and I'm learning a lot of new stuff. So I figured I'd just start blogging like more consistently. Just like maybe like once a week at least, put a blog post in, get into the habit. Nice. Very cool. All right, guys. Simon, if our listeners want to reach out and have questions, how's the best way to get in touch with you? Pop to the UK and shout incredibly loudly, and I'll probably know. So I have a, a website, www.thecodepainter.co.uk. I, I didn't choose it, but everyone seems to like it. I'm on LinkedIn and all the usual biz. I'm on Twitter as at MadSimonJ. So please feel out to reach to me. I love talking code or nerdy, geeky stuff or, or whatever. I'm, I'm fairly friendly and approachable. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Thanks for coming on the show today, Simon. It was great to talk about uh, functional programming and C Sharp. And hopefully somebody can try to you know, use some of that and put it to good use and, and start uh, you know, mixing, matching functional programming and, and, uh, and object-oriented and however they want to go about it. Sure, yeah. It, it'd be marvelous to think of. Uh, I've done some good in my time. <laughs> I think you have. Thanks, Simon. If our listeners want to reach out and get in touch with the show, they can get me on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> it would have been horrible if we had missed that, if I hadn't been able to make it. I'm, I'm just telling you. <laughs> I missed last week. So and, did you do it without me? Yes. <laughs> Didn't I? Yeah. Something we tried. Like yeah. It was pretty terrible. <laughs> 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 we tried, though. We tried. Yeah. And right. I'm Caleb Wells Coates. All right, guys. Thanks, everyone. And we'll catch everybody else on the next episode of AdventuresIn.net. Bye, y'all. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.